Section 14 of Around the World on a Bicycle, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by William Tomko. Around the World on a Bicycle, Volume 2, by Thomas Stevens. Chapter 7, Birjand and the Frontier of Afghanistan, Part 2. All through Persia, the word ab has heretofore been used for water, but linguistic changes are naturally to be expected near the frontier, and the Darmian people use the term ao. Upon my calling for ab, the Khan's attendant stares blankly in reply but an animated individual in the front ranks of the crowd about the doors and windows enlightens him and me at the same time by shouting out, Ow! 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 The musin, calling the faithful to their evening prayers, likewise utters the summons here at Darmian quite differently from anything of the kind heard elsewhere. The cry is difficult to describe, but without meaning to cast reflections on the worthy musin's voice, I may perhaps be permitted to mention that the people are twice admonished and twice a listening khatir, donkey, awakens the echoing voices of the rock-ribbed gulch in vociferous response. The mother-in-law of the Mirza lives at Darmian, and, like a dutiful son, he lingers in her society until nine o'clock next morning. At that hour he turns his horse's footsteps down the bed of the stream while his comrade guides me for a couple of miles over a most abominable mountain trail, rejoining the river and the dutiful son-in-law at Forg. Forg is situated at the extremity of the gulch and is distinguished by a frowning old castle or fort that occupies the crest of a precipitous hill overtopping the village and commanding a very comprehensive view of the country toward the Afghan frontier. The villages of Darmian and Forg, looking out upon mild frontier territory, inhabited chiefly by turbulent and lawless tribespeople, whose hereditary instincts are diametrically opposed to the sublime ethics of the Decalogue, have no doubt often found the grim stronghold towering so picturesquely above them an extremely convenient thing. The escort points it out and explains that it belongs to the Padishah at Tehran, and not to his own master, the Amir, a national as distinct from a provincial fortification. The cultivated environs of Forg present a most discouraging front to a wheelman, walled gardens, rocks, orchards, and ruins, with hundreds of water-ditches winding and twisting among them, the water escaping through broken banks and creating new confusion where confusion already reigns supreme. Among this indescribable jumble of mud, water, rocks, ruins, and cultivation, pitched almost at an angle of forty-five degrees, the natives climb about bare-legged, impressing one very forcibly as so many human goats, as they scale the walls, clamber over rocks, or wade through mud and water. A willing Forgian divests himself of everything but his hat, and carries the bicycle across the stream while I am taken up behind the Mirza. As the Mirza's iron-gray gingerly enters the water, an interesting and instructive spectacle is afforded by a hundred or more Forgians following the shining example of the classic figure carrying the bicycle. 
for the purpose of being on hand to see me start across the plain toward Tabas. Some of these good people are wearing turbans the size of a bandbox. Others wear enormous sheepskin busbies. A number of tall, angular figures stemming the turbid stream in the elegant costumes of our first parents, but wearing Khorasani busbies or Birjand turbans, makes a bizarre and striking picture. A gravelly trail, with the gradient slightly in my favor, enables me to create a better impression of a bicycler's capabilities on the mind of the Mirza and the Sowar than was possible yesterday, by quickly leaving them far in the rear. Some miles are covered when I make a halt of them to overtake me, seeking the welcome shelter of a half-ruined wayside umbar. An Eliud camp is about a short distance away, and several sun-painted children of the desert are eagerly interviewing the bicycle when my escort comes galloping along. Not seeing me anywhere in view ahead, they had wondered what had become of their wheel-winged charge, and are quite relieved at finding me here hobnobbing with the Iliots behind the umbar. The Mirza's fond mother-in-law has presented him with a quantity of dried pears with half a walnut embedded in each quarter. During a brief halt at the umbar, these Darmian delicacies are fished out of his saddlebags and duly pronounced upon and the genial Iliauts contribute flowing bowls of dok, soured milk, prepared in some manner that prevents its spoiling. High noon finds us at our destination for the day, the village of Tabas, famous in all the country around for a peculiar windmill used in grinding grain. A grist mill, or mills, consists of a row of one-storied mud huts, each of which contains a pair of grindstones. Connecting with the upper stone is a perpendicular shaft of wood which protrudes through the roof and extends fifteen feet above it. Cross pieces run through at right angles and, plaited with rushes, transform the shaft into an upright four-bladed affair that the wind blows around and turns the millstones below. So far, this is only a very primitive and clumsy method of harnessing the wind, but connected with it is a very ingenious contrivance that redeems it entirely from the commonplace. A system of mud walls are built about, the same height or a little higher than the shaft, in such a manner as to concentrate and control the wind in the interest of the miller, regardless of which direction it is blowing in. The suction created by the peculiar disposition of the walls whisks the rude wattle sails around in the most lively manner. Forty of these mills are in operation at Tabas, and to see them all in full swing, making a loud swishing sound as they revolve, is a most extraordinary sight. Aside from Tabas, these novel grist mills are only to be seen in the territory above the Seistan Lake. The doorway of the quarters provided for our accommodation being too small to admit the bicycle, not the slightest hesitation is made about knocking out the threshold. Every male visible about the place seems eagerly desirous of lending a hand in sweeping out the room, spreading new moods, bringing quilts, tea, callions, or something. A slight ripple upon the smooth and pleasing surface of the universal inclination to do us honor is the sententious controversy between the Mirza and a blatant individual who enters objections about killing a sheep. Whether in the absence of the village Khan, the objections are based on an unwillingness to supply the mutton, or because the sheep are miles away on the plain, does not appear, 
but whatever the objections, the Mirza overcomes them, and we get freshly slaughtered mutton for supper. Tea is evidently a luxury not to be lightly regarded at Tabas. After the leaves have served their customary purpose, they are carefully emptied into a saucer, sprinkled with sugar, and handed around. Each guest takes a pinch of the sweetened leaves and eats it. The modus operandi of manipulating the kalyan likewise comes in for a slight modification here. The ordinary Persian method, before handing the water pipe to another, is to lift off the top while taking the last pull and thus empty the water chamber of smoke. The tabasites accomplish the same end by raising the top and blowing down the stem. This mighty difference in the manners of clearing the water chamber of a hubble bubble will no doubt impress the minds of intellectual Occidentals as a remarkably important and valuable piece of information. Not less interesting and remarkable will likewise seem the fact that the flower frescoed proprietors of these queer little tabas grist mills are nothing less than the boundary mark between that portion of the water pipe smoking world which blows the remaining smoke out and that portion which inhales it. The Afghan, the Indian, and the Chinaman adopt the former method. The Turk, the Persian, and the Arab, the latter. Yet another interesting habit, evidently borrowed from their uncultivated neighbors beyond the Dashtina Umid, is the execrable practice of chewing snuff. Almost every man carries a supply of coarse snuff in a little sheepskin wallet or dried bladder. At short intervals he rubs a pinch of this villainous stuff all over his teeth and gums and deposits a second pinch away in his cheek. Abdurrahim Khan, the chief of several small villages on the Tabas plain, turns up in the evening. He is the mildest-mannered, kindliest-looking human being I have seen for a long time. He does the agreeable in a manner that leads his guests to think he worships the Ingilis people humbly at a distance, and is highly honored in being able to see and entertain one of those very worshipful individuals. Like nearly all Persians, he is ignorant of the western custom of shaking hands. The sun-browned paw extended to him as he enters is stared at a moment in embarrassment and then clasped between both his palms. The turban of Abdurrahim Khan is a marvelous evidence of skill in the arranging of that characteristic eastern headdress. The snowy whiteness of the material, the gracefulness of the folds, and the elegant crest-like termination are not to be described and done justice to by either word or pen. To reply to my inquiries, I am glad to find that Abdurrahim Khan speaks less discouragingly of the Harood than did the Amir at Ali Abad. He says it will be fordable for camels, and there will be no difficulty in finding nomads able to provide me an animal to cross over with. Some cause of delay, incomprehensible to me, appears to interfere with the continuation of my journey in the morning, most of the forenoon being spent in a discussion of the subject between Abdurrahim Khan and the Mirza. About noon, a messenger arrives from Ali Abad, bringing a letter from the Amir, which seems to clear up the mystery at once. The letter probably contains certain instructions about providing me an escort that were overlooked in the letter brought by the Mirza. When about starting, the Khan presents me with a bowl of sweet stuff, a heavy preparation of sugar, grease, and peppermint. 
A very small portion of this lead-like concoction suffices to drive out all the other considerations in favor of a determination never to touch it again. An attempt to distribute it among the people about us is interpreted by the well-meaning Khan as an impulse of pure generosity on my own part, the result being that he ties the stuff up nicely in a clean handkerchief that an unlucky bystander happens to display at that moment and bids me carry it with me. An ancient retainer, without any teeth to speak of, and an annoying habit of shouting, Hoy! at a person, regardless of the fact that one is within hearing of the merest whisper, is detailed to guide me to a few hovels perched among the mountains. Four farsacks to the southeast, from which point the journey across the Dashtina Umid is to begin, with an escort of three sowars who are to join us there later in the evening. A couple of miles over fairly level ground, and then commences again the everlasting hills, up, up, down, up, down, clear to our destination for the day. While trundling along over the rough foothills, I am approached by some nomads who are tending goats nearby. Seeing them gather about me, my aged but valiant protector comes galloping briskly up and imperatively waves them away. A grandfatherly party, with a hacking cough, a rusty scimitar, and a flintlock musket of ye olden time. I fancied the aged merely a guide to show me the road. As I worry along over the rough, unridable mountains, the irritation of being shouted hoy at for no apparent reason, except for the luxury of hearing the music of his own voice, is so annoying that I have about resolved to abandon him to a well-deserved fate in case of attack. But now, instead of leaning on me for protection, he blossoms forth at once as not only the protector of his own person, but of mine as well. As he comes galloping bravely up and dismisses the wild-looking children of the desert with the grandiloquent sweep of his hand, he is almost rewarded by an involuntary bravo, olden, from myself. So superior to the occasion does he seem to rise. The little nest of mud-huts are found. After a certain amount of hesitation, and preliminary going ahead by the aged, and toward nightfall three picturesque horsemen ride up and dismount. They are the sowars detailed by the Amir's orders to Abdurrahim, or some other borderland Khan, to escort me across the desert of despair. The aged bravely returns to Tabas in the morning by himself. When on the point of departing, he surveys me wistfully across a few feet of space and shouts, Hoy! He then regards me with a peculiar and indescribable smile. It is not a very hard smile to interpret, however, and I present him with the customary bakshish. Pocketing the coins, he shouts, Hoy! again, and delivers himself of another smile, even more peculiar and indescribable than the other. Persian-like, receiving a present of money only excites his cupidity for more, I think, and so reply by a deprecatory shake of the head. This turns out to be an uncharitable judgment, however, for once. He goes through the pantomime of using a pen and says, Abdurrahim Khan. He saw me write my name, the date of my appearance at Tabas, etc., on a piece of paper and give it to Abdurrahim Khan and he wants me to do the same thing for him. The three worthies comprising my new escort are most interesting specimens of the genus Sowar. 
the leader and spokesman of the trio, says he is a Khan, number two is a Mirza, and number three a Mudbake. Khans are pretty plentiful hereabouts, and it is nothing surprising to happen across one acting in the humble capacity of a sowar. A Mirza gets his title from his ability to write letters. The precise social status of a mudbake is more difficult to hear determine, but his proper roosting place is several rungs of the social ladder below either of the others. They are to take me through to the Khan of Guralakua, the first Afghan chieftain beyond the desert, and to take back to the Amir a receipt from him for my safe delivery. It is a far easier task to reckon up their moral caliber than their social. Before being in their delectable company an hour, they reveal that strange mingling of childlike simplicity and total moral depravity that enters into the composition of semi-civilized kleptomaniacs. The Khan is a person of a highly sanguine temperament and possesses a headstrong disposition. Coupled with his perverted notions of meum and tuum, these qualities will some fine day end in his being brought up with a round turn and required to part company with his ears or nose, or to be turned adrift on the cold charity of the world, deprived of his hands by the crude and summary justice of Khorasan. His eyes are brown and large, and spherical almost as an owl's eyes and they bulge out in a manner that exposes most of the white he wears long hair curled up after the manner of persian ladidadum and in his crude uncivilized fear evidently fancies himself something of a dandy the mirza is quiet and undemonstrative in his manners as compared with his social superior and as becomes a person gifted with the rare talent of composing and writing letters his bump of cautiousness is several degrees larger than the khan's but is nevertheless not large enough to counterbalance the pernicious effect of an inherited and deeply rooted yearning for filthy lucre and a lamentable indifference as to the manner of obtaining it the mudbake is the oldest man of the three and consequently should be found setting the others a good example but instead of this his frequent glances at my packages are if anything more heavily freighted with the molecules of covetousness and an eager longing to overhaul their contents than either the khan's or the mirza's pool 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 keran 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 the probable amount in my possession, the amount they expect to receive as bakshish, and kindred speculations concerning the financial aspect of the situation form almost the sole topic of their conversation. Throwing them off their guard by affecting greater ignorance of their language than I am really guilty of enables me to size them up pretty thoroughly by their conversation, and thus to adopt a line of policy to counteract the baneful current of their thoughts. Their display of cunning and rascality is ridiculous in the extreme. Fancying themselves deep and unfathomable as the shades of Lucifer himself, they are, in reality, almost as transparent and simple as children. Their cunning is the cunning of the schoolboy. Well aware that the safety of their own precious carcasses depends on their returning to Khorasan with a receipt from the Khan of Chalakua for my safe delivery, there is little reason to fear actual violence from them, and their childish attempts at extortion by other methods will furnish an amusing and instructive study of barbarian character. The hovel in which our queerly assorted company of eight people sleep, 
the owners of the shanty, the aged, the Khan, the Mirza, the Mudbake, and myself, is entered by a mere hole in the wall, and the bicycle has to stand outside and take the brunt of a heavy thunderstorm during the night. In this respect, however, it is an object of envy rather than otherwise, for myriads of fleas, larger than I would care to say, for fear of being accused of exaggeration, hold high level on our devoted carcasses all the live-long night. From the swarms of these frisky insects that disport and kick their heels together in riotous revelry on and about my own person, I fancy, forsooth, they have discovered in me something to be made the most of, as a variety of food seldom coming within their province. But the complaining moans of Ali Akbar from the aged, the guttural grunts of disapproval from the Mirza and the Mudbake, and the impatient growls of Kek, flea, from the Khan, tell of their being at least partial companions in misery. But being thicker-skinned, and withal well-seasoned to this sort of thing, their sufferings are less than mine. The rain has cleared up, but the weather looks unsettled. As, about eight o'clock next morning, our little party starts eastward, under the guidance of a villager whom I have employed to guide us out of the immediate range of mountains, the sowars betraying a general ignorance of the commencement of the route. My escort are a great improvement as regards their arms and equipments upon the aged. Among the three are two percussion double-barreled shotguns, a percussion musket, six horse-pistols of various degrees of serviceableness, swords, daggers, ornamental goat's paunch powder-pouches, peculiar pendant brass rings containing spring-nippers for carrying and affixing caps, leathern water-bottles, together with various odds and ends of warlike accoutrement distributed about their persons or their saddles. Inchila Galakua! Galakua! exclaims the Khan, as he swings himself into the saddle. Inshallah, Allah, is the response of the Mirza and the Mudbake, as they carelessly follow his example, and the march across Dashtina Umid begins. The Riyadh leads the way afoot, following along the partially empty beds of mountain torrents, through patches of rank camel-thorn, over boulder-strewn areas and drifts of sand, sometimes following along the merest suggestion of a trail, but quite as frequently following no trail at all. At certain intervals occurs a piece of good rideable ground. Our villager guide then looks back over his shoulder and bounds ahead with a swinging trot, eager to enjoy the spectacle of the bicycle spinning along at his heels. The escort bring up the rear in a leisurely manner, absorbed in the discussion of pool. Several miles are covered in this manner, when we emerge upon a more open country, and after consulting at some length with the villager, the Khan declares himself capable of finding the way without further assistance. It is a strange, wild country, where we part from our local guide. It looks as though it might be the battleground of the elements. A trail that is only here and there to be made out follows a southeasterly course down a ventureless tract of country strewn with rocks and boulders and furrowed by the rushing waters of torrents now dried up. Jagged rocks and boulders are here mingled in indescribable confusion on a surface of unproductive clay and smaller stones. On the east stretches a waste of low, stony hills 
and on the west the mountains we have recently emerged from rise two thousand feet above us in an almost unbroken wall of precipitous rock by and by the khan separates himself from the party and gallops away out of sight to the left his declared mission being to purchase gushti mutton from a camp of nomads whose whereabouts he claims to know as the commissaire of the party i have of course entrusted him with a sufficient quantity of money to meet our expenses and the mirza and the mudbake no sooner find themselves alone than another excellent trait of their character comes to the surface upon comparing their thoughts they find themselves wonderfully unanimous in their suspicion as to the honesty of the khan's intentions toward not me but themselves these worthy individuals are troubled about the khan's independent conduct in going off alone to spend money where they cannot witness the transaction they are sorely troubled as to probable sharp practice on the part of their social superior in the division of the spoils the spoils shades of croesus the whole transaction is but an affair of battered kermis intrinsically not worth a moment's consideration but it serves its purpose of affording an interesting insight into the character of my escort the poor mirza and the mudbake are no doubt fully justified in entertaining the worst opinions possible of the khan he is a sad scoundrel on a small scale to say the least while they are growling out to each other their grievances and apprehensions that artful schemer is riding his poor horse miles and miles over the stony hills to the camping-ground of some hospitable Iliaut chieftain from whom he can obtain gusht-e-gufsani for nothing and come back and say he bought it several miles are slowly travelled by us three when no sign of the khan appearing we decide upon a halt until he rejoins us in an hour or so the bizarre figure of the absentee is observed approaching us from over the hills and before many minutes he is welcomed by a simultaneous query of chand pool how much money from his keenly suspicious comrades delivered in a ludicrously sarcastic tone of voice du tseran promptly replies the khan making a most hopeless effort to conceal his very palpable guilt beneath a transparent assumption of innocence the mirza and the mudbake make no false pretense of taking him at his word but openly accuse him of deceiving them the khan maintains his innocence with vehement language and takes refuge in the counter accusations the wordy warfare goes merrily on for some minutes as earnestly as if they were quarrelling over their own honest money instead of over mine the joint query of chand pool gathers an additional load of irony from the fact that they didn't seem to think it worth while to even ask him what he had bought across the pommel of his saddle he carries a young kid which is now handed to the mudbake to be tethered to a shrub he then dismounts and produces three or four pounds of cold goat meat before proceeding again on our way we consume this cold meat together with bread brought from last night's rendezvous by reason of his social inferiority the mudbake is now required to assume the burden of carrying the youthful goat he takes the poor kid by the scruff of the neck and flings it roughly across his saddle in a manner that causes the gleeful spirits of the khan to find vent in a peal of laughter even the usually imperturbable countenance of the mirza lightens up a little as though infected by the khan's overflowing merriment and the mudbake's rough handling of the young goat they know each other thoroughly as thoroughly as orchard looting 
truant-playing, teacher-deceiving schoolboys. These three hopeful aspirants to the favor of Allah, they are an amusing trio, and not a little instructive. End of section 14 Recorded by William Tomko